Welcome back to True Crime on Easy Street. My name is Katie Givens, and I'm still not a lawyer. My name is Scott Wright, and I am about to confirm for everyone that I am a mediocre journalist because our special guest tonight is Ninth Circuit District Attorney Mike O'Dell. And we have said, we've, we've said Mike's name so many times on this show since we've started it back in April uh, that it's a wonder he hasn't sued us already. Uh, but always good, Mike, I promise. But welcome. Glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to come and visit with you. Well, we're going to talk about some of the, since we started back in April, we've talked about at least three cases. And you and I swapped some uh, text messages last week and some emails. And so there are three of the cases that we've covered since we've been doing the True Crime Podcast. And Mike, just in case you didn't know, everything that we have done on the show so far has been a case that's been based in Alabama, or at least had an Alabama connection in some way. So when I sent you the list and told you about uh, Judith Ann Neely and Hayward Bissell and Mark Barton, you indicated that those would be three of the cases that you might be able to shed some light on. Some of the questions that we've had, not really questions, but we can't know everything being on the outside looking in. We've read books and we've done our research on various websites, but there's still some things that we feel like that you can add to these cases. And we feel like our listeners would be happy to hear about some of these things. So we're going to pick your brain for the next that's good. 30 or 45 minutes. I enjoy having my brain picked. Today. All right. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Mike O'Dell is our Ninth Circuit District Attorney. That, in, uh, that is Cherokee and DeKalb Counties here in Northeast Alabama. Uh, you were the former District Attorney of the Year in 2014. I found out earlier today. Congratulations. Well, I appreciate that. Sorry for the belated uh, <laughs> kudos there. Uh, you were appointed to, de- uh, to be the District Attorney in 1996 after having been hired in 81. That's correct. Early 81. And you've been reelected three times since then, or four times. Four times. Four Four times times. since then. Um, So, Mike, tell us a little bit about what got you into, how did your career path go the way that it did, if you don't mind me prying and asking? Well, I don't mind. Uh, I originally started out uh, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I was working in the law school with the dean at that time, and uh, I got a call from a local attorney in Fort Payne, John Baker. And he was looking for somebody to come and run his office while he ran for office. And uh, so my wife and I made the journey up there. We liked the place. Uh, I, I have great affinity for John and his staff. And so I wound up going to work with him. And uh, after a couple of years of that, he decided to, uh, to run for U.S. Senate. Uh, unfortunately, it was a, a futile effort on Understood. his part. That happens sometimes. Uh, so he wound up taking a job with the uh, railway. Southern Railway down in uh, Birmingham, I mean Montgomery, as a lobbyist, and uh, I was looking for something to do, so I opened up legal services uh, in Fort Payne, and then after a couple of years, uh, uh, Richard Igo had an opening, and he came to me and said that he had loved to have me come to work as his chief assistant, and in 1981, I did, and the rest is history. All right, so if, uh, Katie, is there anything? I was just going to say that Listeners may remember Richard Igo's name because he was in the Judith Ann Neely case that we talked about. We mentioned his name several times when we did our very first episode, which was about the Judith Ann Neely. And and we always struggle to make sure, and we want to honor the the victims, and so we try to remember to call it the Lisa Ann Milliken case, but unfortunately it ends up usually being the Judith Ann Neely case. And so you, you, you got that job at the Ninth Circuit in 81. That's correct. So it wasn't very long before this... Judith Ann Neely case happened and you were a part of it. Tell us a little bit about some of your initial reactions from understanding that this was going to be a really big case that you were going to have to defend or to prosecute. 
Well, the state of Alabama had uh, had a, a lapse or a, 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 they stopped the death penalty uh, for a period of time in the 70s, and they had just reinstated it with new uh, parameters. And so this was actually the first uh, capital murder case, I think, uh, that had been tried in Cab County in a long time. Uh, having just come out of law school and started work, uh, having been in criminal law, uh, with Richard for just a short period of time, it's somewhat daunting to, uh, to walk right in in the first major case we have being uh, the Judith Neely case. I will tell you this, when I graduated from law school, somebody asked me, uh, uh, when you, when, what are you going to do? What are you looking forward right. to do for the rest of your career? And my response was, I'll tell you one thing I won't do, and, and that's going to be criminal law. You didn't and want to be a defense attorney. Did, well, I did not want to be a defense lawyer. That's right. I never thought about being a prosecutor. And so I had discounted uh, criminal law as a future, and lo and behold, 40-something years later, here I am. Here you are yeah. sitting with us, Mike. Yeah, so, well, we're uh, glad to have you. You've been a benefit to this district for a long time. I, I don't mind saying that. that. Um, so getting into the Judith Ann Neely case, tell us a little bit. About, and we won't go back and rehash the whole thing. If folks want to hear some of the details of the case, they can go back and listen to our very first case from April of this year and learn all about the method that, that Alvin Neely and Judith Ann Neely used to try and lure these young girls to uh, to commit these crimes. I remember reading one passage in the book that I read, and the name of the book is going to escape me right now unless Katie oh, can remember it. Um, was it Early Graves? With early Doug Graves. Yes. Thank you, Mike. Uh, yes, thank you. It was Excellent Early Graves. It, is, it was a very good book, and it seems that I remember one passage in that book where you mentioned the fact that during your initial the first time you walked into a room with Judith Ann Neely, she left an impression on you right away. Am I getting that right? Is that something you recall? Uh, yeah, I would say that was an accurate assessment. We, uh, uh, the, from the very first time we had any kind of hearings with her, it was clear that she was a different kind of person. And as the trial progressed, um, just the evil, evilness that emanated from her uh, uh, became more and more overwhelming. And I, I had remarked to, to Richard after we uh, had finished one particular hearing that, you know, I felt the need to go take a shower. That it just, I just felt dirty just being in the same courtroom with her. But right. um, there was, a, it was an emptiness in her eyes and, and just a total lack of compassion or remorse for anything that she had done. And I think that had a, a, a really substantial impact on, on how I felt moving forward with the case. And I know Richard felt the same way. And it seems like there was, it seems like you guys had to overcome this sense that Alvin Neely was the the brains of this operation uh, because it 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 seemed clear from the book and from the some of the quotes that I've heard you say and Mr. Igo say and Danny Smith and some of the other guys who were quoted in this book that it became pretty clear pretty quickly that Alvin Neely was not it, despite the fact that he was a huge overpowering man and older than Judith Ann Neely by several years it really wasn't he was not in charge of how this all played out. Well, I don't want to rehash some of the information you may already have, but during the course of the trial, we learned that, uh, that Judith Ann Neely had an IQ uh, the, at the low level was 110, but at the high level was 125. So not a, not a, not a dumb young lady. Oh, no, very intelligent. In fact, the, uh, the psychiatrist said that she was a very, very intelligent woman. On the other side, you had Alvin Neely, who barely reached the threshold of 80. And okay. uh, so it was clear in talking, listening to Neely in the trial situation, but then again, talking to uh, Alvin uh, when having a chance to interview him, uh, 
there was no no doubt in our mind who was responsible Steve who was ahead of this operation right uh, are there any and and we'll talk one a little bit more about Judith and Neely and then we can move on to the next topic that we have but is there anything from the trial itself or from those proceedings that really jump out at you that's a memory from all of I mean this happened in the the court case was in March of 83 so this is literally something that happened uh, 38 years ago well, it's, it's obviously the most important case that I, I've tried in my career. It spans the 40 years. Um, and I would say that one of the issues that we had, uh, uh, you know, never since then have we, uh, have we had to work from 6 o'clock in the morning to midnight uh, trying to piece everything together. But the trial came together very well, not the least of which was because of the uh, superlative efforts of investigators like Danny Smith and Kenneth Kynes from Georgia. Uh, we just had a remarkable uh, team that, that, that put this thing together. Uh, and it was the longest trial we've ever had. It lasted, I think, some six weeks. And it was a, it was a trial that kept on giving. Uh, we had motion after motion after motion. And uh, uh, it wasn't until several years after that that we had the, uh, the final Rule 32 that was uh, denied. And then subsequently, uh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, issued a, a, an opportunity for us to get a death sentence, a death date set. Um, again, uh, the thing that sticks out in my mind the most was the efforts uh, of uh, Governor Fob James. I was, I was going to ask. Well, yeah, I realized when I said one more question and we'll move on that there was at least one other question <laughs> that, that you and I, because be one of the first times that you and I ever uh, communicated extensively in your capacity as district attorney and mine as a mediocre journalist over at the Post was to try and get to the bottom of exactly what it was that Fob James had done on the, one of the last days of his, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? His tenure. His, his tenure, his, that'll yeah. work. His tenure in 1999. So that you and I have talked several times about that very specifically, but remember, help me remember the first time that Well, I'll, I'll tell you how that came about for me. I was uh, in, going to the cleaners to pick up some, uh, some suits, and as I got back in the car, I got a call from uh, the Attorney General. And uh, he said, uh, I guess you've heard. And I said, uh, heard what? He said, well, I just got notice that Bob James has commuted Judith Ann Neely's sentence from death to life. And I, I was stunned. I, I didn't know what to say. And I said, well, did you get uh, notice, pre-notice of that? And he said, no. Uh, the first thing he heard about it was when, uh, uh, when they sent the notice over after the fact. And as it turns out, Fob got in a plane on his way to Canada to do some goose or duck hunting and told his staff not to uh, release that, uh, that commutation until after he was in the air and on his way to Canada. Oh, wow. um, that, was, that was a pretty crushing blow, if you want to know the truth, because uh, of all the work we had put through in that case and, and the justified sentence of death was uh, what we had all expected and hoped for. And then to have that to happen the way it did and to have her now eligible for parole uh, is probably one of the most lasting memories I have. Yeah, and, and I won't go back through it. We talked about it when we did the show, but there was a sequence where I actually called Bob James at home and you ended up wanting me. There was a chance that at some point I was going to have to go to Birmingham or Montgomery, wherever, and, and, and testify to the fact that I'd spoken to Bob James. That's correct. What, what I found out uh, in my conversation with you were. I believe to this day, you are probably the only journalist that has gotten a comment from Bob James about why he did it. And uh, he made it clear to you, and, and he issued that statement. 
stating that he did not understand that by commuting her sentence that she would ever be eligible for parole. He was under the impression that it would be life without parole and that that's what his legal had told him. And at that time, his legal advisor was uh, Troy King. And uh, frankly, Troy just got it wrong. It seems pretty clear cut on, on in, the, in the books on how that works. So I can't imagine that. That just seems crazy to me that they would overlook that. Well, I believe uh, Governor James truly believed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just have to believe that. But I, it's hard for me to understand, as you just said, how as clear as it is in the Constitution, uh, how Troy King could have missed that. But they could have easily have avoided that by contacting either the Attorney General at that time uh, or myself. Or certainly you. And they didn't do either and, one. And ask right. how you felt about, That's you know. That's correct. And, and Giving us an opportunity to yeah. have input, but uh, he chose not to. So uh, throughout the course of my career, Fob James is, is known for two things uh, that have been very critical in my life. One is very positive. He was the governor that appointed me DA when Richard went supernumerary. Okay. But at the same time, uh, he probably did the most uh, crushing thing to me in my legal career. Uh, and that was commuting that Senate. Yeah. And, and with respect to your, uh, your comments and, and your, your essentially would have been testimony was when she came up for parole in 2018. I was planning on trying to get in touch with you to come down and testify. That, I remember uh, the phone call. You got that statement. But uh, I was able to, uh, to tell the, the parole board uh, that information anyway. And uh, I think in 55 seconds uh, after we concluded the, uh, the parole hearing, they issued their ruling that she was going to be denied. Well, I would have gladly driven three hours no, to spend would. 50 seconds to help you do that if that's what needed to be done. So, that. yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move on from uh, Judith Ann Neely. And there are a couple of other cases that we've dealt with since we've been doing the podcast. And we'll move on to the next one uh, on my list, and that is uh, Mark Barton. And he came into the news when he uh, shot and killed 11 people. I think not, He shot and killed nine people. He- uh, yeah, actually killed, killed 12. 12. Yeah, it was 12. And injured, okay. uh, I think 13. Yeah, and that was in Atlanta, is. in Marietta. But it turned out, and, and and we tried not to, we tried to tell the story in a way that made sense and 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 flowed through the timeline. But he had been involved in something that happened in Cherokee County six or seven years before that. We're all pretty sure, uh, but there, nobody could ever pin that on him. And I'm just curious to know what that was like from a DA's perspective to know that you, I don't put words in your mouth. Tell me about that case. Well, aside from the Neely uh, commutation, that's, that's probably my greatest regret. And that was the fact that we were not able to to charge him and bring him to justice uh, before he committed those uh, heinous acts in 1999. Uh, Barton, Barton's wife and mother-in-law were actually uh, murdered in a camper at Cedar Bluff in, uh, I think it was Labor Day weekend, September 4th, or into the early hours of the 5th in 1993. Um, we spent, uh, I think, as many hours getting ready for that case or investigating that case as we did on the Neely case. And uh, I think over 600 witnesses were interviewed. Uh, the problem with the case was we had no physical evidence that linked Barton to the camper that night. And uh, he had a girlfriend that he had been dating since May of that year. Um, they were talking about getting married. He had made statements to friends uh, that uh, he and his wife were going to have to, his, he and his girlfriend were going to have to get rid of their uh, spouses so they could get together by October, early October. 
Uh, they, that sounds familiar. Friends, friends thought that they were uh, talking about divorcing. Uh, I think we saw it differently, but right. uh, the problem was that she gave him an alibi, and we were not able to break the alibi at that time. We had no physical evidence uh, connecting him to the to the uh, scene itself. But there were so many circumstances that uh, pointed directly at him. The, the uh, life insurance uh, that mm-hmm. he got six hundred thousand that he got thirty days before uh, the, the murder. The fact that she already had $110,000 from uh, through work. Um, the fact that uh, it, it was clearly not a robbery. There was nothing taken but the, uh, the wedding rings from both of the women. Uh, although there was $600 in cash that was uh, laying around. Uh, there were other jewelry pieces. Uh, there was even a, a handgun that was on the counter in the kitchen that was taken. So we knew it, it wasn't uh, a robbery. Um, just a very murder itself, I think he, uh, the assailant, uh, killed uh, Deborah Barton uh, with 10 strikes with a hatchet-like weapon uh, very brutally and then killed her, uh, her mother uh, with seven strikes. But it was clear to investigators that the, the savagery was mostly directed towards her. Um, and the heartache of not being able to bring him to justice when six years later, uh, he would go on to kill so many other people, including his wife and the two children, uh, was a pretty devastating blow. And uh, again, it was something I hadn't heard about till I got home, and I saw about six uh, TV trucks in my front yard and started getting phone calls on my cell phone and my home phone, and uh, I hadn't realized what had happened until they, I got out of my car and they told me, have you heard about Mr. Barton and the, and the murders in, in Atlanta. So um, I can tell you without any doubt in my mind, we had the right suspect. Uh, we had FBI, GBI, ABI. Uh, we had uh, forensic profilers. Uh, everybody came to the same conclusion. We had the right man. We just didn't have the evidence to prove. And it's funny that you said that about the, uh, the TV trucks because my parents at the time lived across the cove from Riverside Campground in Cedar Bluff when this happened. And I was home. I had graduated from college, but it was uh, the September of 93, like you said. Uh, and this doesn't matter, but I remember the TV trucks as well, driving around our neighborhood, trying to find the entrance to Riverside Campground. because, And I didn't know what had happened either. I knew something had happened. Right. But it was, you know, sometime later, a few hours, a few minutes later before I realized what had happened. But it was a... CNN was on the story. It's right there in Atlanta where CNN's headquartered. So they were immediately on the story. And as they started to put out their feelers and learn things about this person, and uh, it didn't take long to go, hey, wait a minute. He was a suspect in something that happened yeah, in the, Alabama. The shift from the, uh, the 12 victims in, in Atlanta quickly shifted to the uh, two victims in the campground. And uh, it was difficult because many of the... Uh, the interviews uh, were directed at what we did wrong or what we could have done to, pre- to have prevented the additional killings. And I think uh, even the Atlanta Journal had, uh, had a story written by a writer named Levine mm-hmm. uh, who quoted, he quoted uh, uh, Jerry Wynn from the Douglas uh, County uh, Sheriff's Office who said that the Alabama investigators watched that investigation which caused the death of 12 people. Um, I had to respond to that uh, both in writing and on the air and, and uh, uh, can tell you that I think that was uh, from Sour Grapes. Mr. Wynn had been removed from the investigation 
uh, of my understanding, my recollection was, because uh, information was released uh, right after the investigation, that uh, you know, after the murders, uh, that, that we were trying to keep quiet uh, for uh, investigative reasons. And because of that, he was pretty much pushed aside and, and GBI took his place. And I think that's where that came from. But, uh, right. Uh, you know, it, it broke my heart because the effort that our local folks and state folks, you know, we had crime scene investigators, we had the FBI investigators. It, like I said, uh, thousands of man hours were put into that investigation. And, and I can categorically say that there's not a thing that could have been done uh, that wasn't done by those investigators. And, uh, and there, there is some residual, and uh, I, I don't want to say antagonism, but uh, um, I, am, I am deeply saddened that that had to be the case and that we had to spend so much time defending. Right. I, I read that article. It, it's still out there today, and I thought the same thing when I read it. Well, I think he was spurred on a little bit by uh, Mr. Spivey, who was the uh, husband of, of uh, Deborah's, uh, actually, she was, he was Deborah's dad. And I think he was bitter because we weren't able to uh, to bring Barton to justice mm-hmm. uh, before all these other things happened. And, you know, I can understand that, uh, his frustration. And one of the greatest disappointments we had was we had to fight. Uh, we tried to fight to keep him from getting custody of those two children. And uh, uh, when he got that, we, we were concerned for their, their welfare as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Mr. Spivey was too. And I think he was bitter that he wasn't able to get custody. That's that seems like a refrain from that story, right? That 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 Mr. Spivey he was pretty much estranged from Barton at that point. Oh yeah, and, Barton and never let, saw his yeah. grandchildren, mm-hmm. or it, hardly ever saw his grandchildren again. And initially, he took up for Barton. He was one of his cheerleaders about why he couldn't have done this, and uh, so I think a little bit of that was uh, a remorse from his initial actions, and uh, and maybe he felt like he had uh, maybe suppressed some of the uh, efforts that we had. So yeah. Well, nobody wants to think that they've let someone into their lives who is capable of. Well, I, I will share one other thing about that case sure. that stuck in my mind. Uh, the, the alibi that, uh, that uh, Leanne had given a Barton was one of the stumbling blocks. We weren't able to, uh, to, to overcome that. And towards, I guess it was uh, maybe a year or two later, we continued to work on that case for two or three years uh, constantly. And at one point, I sent Danny Smith up to a visit with her. And he had a long, long discussion. And at one point, I think she almost came clean, but uh, she backed off at the last moment. And Danny said uh, this to her, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but he said, let me just tell you this. We know he killed his wife. He killed his mother. We're certain of that. And we're certain that when he is through with you and gets everything out of you he can, he's going to kill you as well. Mm -hmm. And that was the last thing that any of us ever said to her involving this case. And uh, he walked out, and sure enough, uh, uh, about three or four years after that, uh, yeah. she winds up. All right, well, that brings us to our third case that we've discussed on uh, True Crime on Easy Street thus far in our, is this our first, are we still calling it the first season? Is that what we're doing? I, I think we're still calling it season one, yes. All right, it's season one, Mike. You're, you're our first legal, he's the first guy who knows what the hell he's doing on legal stuff in season one, right? I mean, nobody yes. else does because you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Katie's not a doctor, and Ke- I'm a Kelly's mediocre not journalist. A doctor. Uh, Ke- Kelly you, is. It's fine. Did you, I do it again? You I do always it a lot. do that. Uh, and Stacy Smith was with us back Stacey's when we been did our the Mark other Martin. Guests, yes. She was a legal analyst. Uh, she's an 
A-L-E-A veteran, retired. The last thing we want to talk about is uh, is the Hayward Bissell case, and we went over that very uh, in-depth on the show. And that was another weird case that happened here in Northeast Alabama. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mike, but it was, wasn't was a situation where you guys had to determine exactly where a crime took place in order to determine jurisdiction. How, how complicated was that from a district attorney's point of view? Well, that's one of, one of my most bizarre cases. Uh, the other one, another one being the McKinney case that we've had here in, in Cherokee. Yeah. We're going to do that in a future episode. And we but, may have uh, you back on. For well, that, that one was pretty bizarre too, but, but this one, uh, uh, really, it happened at a time when we were under the, uh, the ice storm, and uh, it uh, it really developed uh, quickly for us from a from a standpoint of proof. We had no questions about uh, him because he 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 said it from the very beginning that he had killed uh, uh, Patricia Boer. But the complications in that case was that uh, we had a psychiatrist from Tuscaloosa, uh, Doctor Hooper, I believe was his name. And he, uh, he was hell-bent on this man being insane, and he was going to do everything he could to keep us from prosecuting him in Alabama. He said, I'm going to testify to his insanity both at the time and uh, his inability to be tried at this time. And it was very frustrating because I felt, as did most of the investigators, that uh, Bissell had had enough... Uh, uh, had, had had enough interaction with uh, psychiatric uh, help and treatment over the years that he knew what to say and how to say it and when to say it in order to, uh, to fool uh, experts uh, pretty readily. But the bottom line is we got to the point where we had, we had investigated the case. We were the ones that actually found the location where the, the, the actual murder took place over in Tryon, Georgia. A group of us had spent a great deal of time taking his information. We, we found a motel that they stayed in when they first got to us, uh, Chattanooga. Um, where they, I think, wound up spending the night in the car because they couldn't afford the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the money. Uh, but we were able to track down things he said until we, we were able to nail it down to the Tryon location because it, it was the only one that had power that we found the dirt mound that had uh, blood stains, blood spots on it. Uh, we called the local uh, Georgia officials, uh, uh, Johnny Bass, who was an incredible investigator from, that, uh, from Chattooga County. Uh, joined in the search with us. We found the location. We were able to take those samples, and they sent them to the GBI lab, and we were able to confirm that that was her blood. And we were able to, taking his comments about he killed her in the parking lot of the uh, of a gas station in, in uh, Georgia, we were able to ascertain for certain that she was killed in Georgia. Now, the question that came in was what we were going to do. We knew we were in trouble in Alabama with, as far as the attempted murders because, uh, you know, if, if he had that kind of compelling testimony that he was insane, we knew where that case wouldn't get very far. So the only hope we had was to push the case uh, with the Georgia officials, and the DA at that time was uh, Buzz Franklin. He's a very good friend of mine and an outstanding prosecutor, um, but he wasn't very interested in pursuing this case, uh, primarily because, if you recall, back at that time, they were having this crematorium issue. Was that the same time? That was the same time. They had 300 bodies that they had been dealing with. and That's a story we need to do sometime. He was in, under an incredible uh, amount of pressure to, to resolve those issues. So he said, look, I just don't have time. And he said, and I'm not convinced that she was killed here. But he said, if you can get the evidence to me, I'll take another look at it. 
So that's when we went out and we located the blood, uh, we got his statements, um, and it took us. Uh, it took me about four or five trips to go back over and sit down and visit with him and Im- implore him to please take another look at it and con- you know at, at least give an idea to give it to the uh, grand jury over there. At one point, I even offered to uh, if he could get me certified over there to pres- I would present it myself and I'd try the case <laughs> for right. him. Right. Uh, because of the fact that he so so overwhelmed with the other matters. And uh, eventually, uh, he, he did acquiesce, and he said, we'll sit down. We talked about it. We convinced him. We took it to the grand jury, and within, really, after two years of pushing, uh, it, was only, it was only a matter of weeks that we were able to get him in front of a circuit judge, a superior court judge over there, and uh, get a guilty plea out of him. Ironically, I, I, you all have heard of Bobby Lee Cook. It was Bobby mm-hmm. Lee Cook's daughter, uh, who was a superior court judge, who took that is that right? Yeah, and uh, and she was uh, she. The way this works, and in Alabama, if you're mentally if you're declared mentally incompetent, you go to a, a, a mental hospital, and the psychiatrists do all they can to bring you back you know, to make you uh, mm-hmm. as normal as they can, which can take six weeks or six years or maybe ten years. In Bissell's case, we anticipated that uh, Doctor Hooper would have him back out in about six weeks. And when you say back out, you mean back out into society, right? Because he he'd be home free. There'd be no, no other, uh, no other ramifications and no other accountability. In Georgia, they have a different law that's called guilty but mentally ill, mm-hmm. and we were aware of that. And that's that's really the base and the bulk of the discussions I had with Buzz Franklin was under your system. You can go ahead. He can plead guilty to, to guilty but mentally ill, but he doesn't get out. He would be sentenced uh, to the penitentiary. But if he decompensated and he had to have mental health treatment, he would be transferred to a secure mental health facility. But the time he spent there would not be counted towards his sentence oh, in the criminal that. system. Oh. Okay. And because of that, uh, it sounded like the perfect arrangement. Mm-hmm. And uh, his lawyers in, in Alabama and, and his lawyer in, in Georgia got together with us. We were able to work it out, and he pled to a life sentence in Georgia, and that's where he is now. now Technically, he was uh, eligible for parole, I think, in 2016, but I was advised that uh, he would not be granted a parole hearing at that date. And that was the latest information that, that Katie yeah, had. That, yeah. She does all of our legal research, and we were asking, well, where is he? Is he still in jail? And she said, yeah, I think he had a, a, a hearing in 16, but I can't find anything about what happened. Well, we had not been able to, to secure that either, except for the okay. fact that I was told that he was still in the penitentiary. And, and the likelihood of him getting parole was uh, very slim. Okay. All right. Uh, so that's, that's how that happened. And, but again, it was, uh, it, it, it was on the verge of being a, a tremendous frustration for us because I had two victims in the cab that, uh, uh, that were devastated both financially, physically, and emotionally. And uh, I will say that uh, the day we got the, uh, the guilty plea, the, the minute after the guilty plea was entered, uh, I made phone calls to both of those victims, to, to Mr. Perch and to Mr. Pumphrey. Mr. Perch had moved to Colorado, and the Pumphreys had moved to Appalachia, and uh, I had to make sure that they were uh, agreeable to having the, the attempted murder cases in Alabama uh, nalprost because uh, we were not able to pursue them, but they were satisfied and overjoyed that he was going to be spending the rest of his life in the penitentiary. And we talked about 
those two families when we did that podcast because mm-hmm. the book that I read that we all read uh, was written by Sheila Johnson, who was a reporter, I think, for the Fort Payne paper at the time. And she had gotten to know this over the course of the trial and, and the subsequent months and years, she'd really gotten to know them. So every time there was a, a development with Mr. Bissell, she would go and talk to, to the Pumphreys and the right. Hertz again. And she, the book keeps up with where they were. And when, when the, was the Perth family that moved to Colorado? Perth, yes. Um, to Colorado. I think they uh, a bed went and to breakfast. work bed and breakfast, right. Yeah. So uh, it, it was interesting to know that, that they had to move on. I mean, they had to move on with their lives and, and someplace else, because we talked about this on the show. It would be hard for them to go out onto that porch every day and see where their two dogs were killed, trying to defend their lives. Just everyday things that you just can't do anymore. And so it was really interesting for us to find out that, that this reporter, especially me being a mediocre journalist, there was actually a reporter who followed up and spent years making sure that this family got the justice that they deserve. And they did. They said the same thing in the book, Mike, that you just said, we're, we're glad to have this over with. He's going away for the rest of his life. That's good with us. Well, they were great people. And, uh, it was devastating for all of us to, when they had to go through that and, uh, the two years waiting for all this to transpire and to come to fruition, uh, was a very difficult time for them. And, and, you know, I, I, I can only imagine what they went through because, uh, when we, when I got to the scene, uh, at the, foot of 117 and we had this man in custody he had he had to wear leg irons because his, uh, his wrists were so thick he couldn't wear and uh, handcuffs and I'll never forget the uh the reaction I, I don't know if it was officer Wooten or which one jumped in the car to try to stop it because he had left it in gear and he almost uh cut his leg off uh, sitting in the, in the front seat the driver's seat because the knife was still there but when he finally got the car stopped and glanced over and looked at, saw that there was a passenger seat belted into the car and realized how badly she had been mutilated, he freaked out. And uh, at that point, everybody drew their guns. and uh, It was, it was uh, horrendous. And just to see what we had to look at, uh, for us to see that and see what these folks went through, it was uh, it's something nobody is, is ever going to forget. I had forgotten. And it's mentioned in the book that you were on the scene. I mean, you were you were out and about in your car despite the snowstorm or the ice storm that day. You, Actually, I had to get somebody in a four wheel drive to come get me. Okay, because I lived but on you, a hill, but I was. But there. you got yes. there that afternoon when they stopped him at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, when they That's boxed correct. him in and and got him out of the car, you were there. I was there, and it was uh, it was a horrible scene, and and it's one that you'll never forget. Right. All right, let's do something a little bit different. Now, we're going to wind the show down now, but I, I mentioned this to you in an email, and you mm-hmm. never responded, so I'm just going to assume that it's okay, and if Mike shoots the whole thing down, then we'll just cut it. But, Mike, what we thought we would do is we would end the show on a lighter note, and we would ask you, we, we did one episode of the show where we didn't do a specific crime that it relates to Alabama. We talked about some of the things that we like to watch in the true crime genre, and you may not like this at all. You may have enough of it from nine to five that when you go home, you want to watch cartoons. I don't know, but that's the question I'm going to ask you in a second. So we have some true crime things that we like to watch. I'm curious to know what you like to do. And you may like to fish or climb trees. Tell me what you like to do in your free time, because I don't know you that well. And I'm curious. Well, every now and then I get a chance to play golf, which I love. I'm not very good at it, but, uh, uh, in our, my job, uh, none of us, none of the attorneys get uh, a whole lot of free time. Right. that's the first thing. And I love to read. 
But uh, my wife and I do watch a lot of TV together. Uh, it's one of the things we can do. Anything and, you want to mention specifically well, that you would recommend to well, our listeners? We're we're, uh, we're into the British dramas, the murder All dramas. Right. Okay. I don't I don't particularly care much for American dramas. It's uh, you know like Law and Order and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, SU, you know, SUV and those things. You mean like Broad SVU. Church, something like that? Oh, Broad Church, okay. uh, Midsummer uh, Murders. Okay. Um, we just just decided to quit watching uh, Prime Suspect. I don't know if you were familiar with it. I'm familiar with, with it. I haven't yeah. watched it, but I'm familiar with well, it. Well, we decided after about the third season that the bad guys keep, uh, you know, the, the police, uh, upper echelon police uh, uh, officials, and they, they're crooked, and uh. none of them so far have been uh, have been brought to account. So my wife last but night. But that's the payoff. Oh, right? listen, after you the one. stick with it. After the one last <laughs> night, my wife got so angry, she said, uh, that's it. I'm not watching another <laughs> one of these. And uh, I said, well, wait, wait, wait. Let me check and see if he is, if he's brought to justice. And uh, after investigating, I found so you had to. he was not. You had, nah. to, you had to look ahead. I did. I you had did. to go to IMDb and look, read did. all the synopses And he the was series. not. She gets transferred uh, to another location. And so I walked downstairs and I said, okay, babe, you win. Uh, that was, we're through with that one. But uh, uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, we got BritBox. I was going to suggest, I was, I was going to yeah, guess that you yes, got BritBox. Yes, if we you had like gone through so many uh, Netflix mm-hmm. uh, and uh, had seen them all. And, uh, and we'll binge and we may watch uh, right. six or seven episodes a weekend. So you mentioned that your, your wife, uh, that is Betsy, correct? Betsy, and correct. you have, tell me about your kids and grandkids, Mom. I've got three daughters, uh, all three are adults, and I've got six grandkids. Uh, one set lives in Chattanooga, one set lives in Sylacauga. They just moved from Auburn. And then my youngest daughter and her son live in Fort Payne. Well, we will expect them to all become fans of True Crime on Easy Street. Well, in I'll the have to tell ahead. them about it. You're so right. please You're right. tell them about that. I can tell you at least one episode they'll listen to. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> at least this one, right? Um, Katie Beth Gibbons, that is all I have. Would you like to bring us home tonight? Uh, thank you so much, Mike Odell, District Attorney for the Ninth Circuit in Northeast Alabama, for being here with us tonight. Our our very first, very special guest. We, yes, we do appreciate it. We know you're busy and taking time out of your day to come, you know, just chat with us is a big deal. And yeah. was there anything else that you wanted to mention? I know. Yeah, if we didn't ask you a question. We fast. No, you, uh, you've asked me everything that I could imagine, but uh, I will say that those three cases in particular, if you had to pick three for me to come and talk to you about, uh, those were all three pretty profound cases that had a, a, a substantial impact on my career. Well, I'm glad that we personally. I'm glad that we did them in the first season so that we could get you on because this one of the very specific things that we wanted to do on the show was stick to crime in the Northeast Alabama area. And it was probably they were rolling their eyes at me a month ago, not in a bad way, but I'm just at some point you I'm did saying that a lot. Well, you know, we yeah, they did that a lot. At some point I'm saying, you know, we need to get Mike Odell on the show because he can he can really drill down on this topic in a way that we don't know that no book's going to describe and Mike you did it today and I'm just so ecstatic that you came and spent an hour with us I'm glad to do I it I hope and you'll do it again sometime I will tell you I'm going to put a plug in for Sheila Johnson though who wrote that book yes uh, I read it some some time back and uh, I thought she did an excellent job she's written other books uh, from other cases uh, the Deborah Roberts case here uh uh, that, that you, uh, oh, I didn't know that she'd written a book about the Deborah Roberts case. I think she wrote a book about that, and, and we also had a, a double homicide in DeKalb that was uh, much like the uh, the uh, Barton case where a man killed his uh, his wife and, and uh, mother-in-law 
in Eider, Alabama. And, uh, okay. It was not much long after this one here, and I think he felt that this guy could get away with it. He could too. So. Well, there uh, may those are some topics that we may address in the future, and I know that Mrs. I'm Johnson, yes, did a fantastic job, and we mentioned her uh, very uh, highly on the show because. Uh, Kelly asked me, she said, Hey, how, how did you like the book? I don't think she read that particular book because we can't all read them all. But she said, what did you think? And I said, you know what, as a mediocre journalist, I can tell you that that woman is a great journalist because she walked, I thought she walked right down the middle of the road and just, and gave you the facts and let you piece it together for yourself. So I thought she did a great job. And I agree with you, Mike. And talking about books, if you're going to read a Neely book, then you, your listeners are going to want to read. Yes, one. please. The only one I would read, and this is sincere, is the Thomas Cook our early graves. Yeah. There have been some some additional ones later on. One particularly from a defense lawyer who shall go nameless. Ah. I, I, I read part of that book, and I I, I, I do highly recommend Thomas Cook. I it think was a it very was good, a book. very very accurate book. Yeah, yeah. So, but but again, thank you for letting me have this opportunity. I've enjoyed it, and uh, and it, it brought me down memory lane. Some memories are good, and and some are not so good. But right. But uh, we've been through them, and we've we've overcome them. And I believe justice was ultimately served in all three cases, one sense or another. Well, Mike, the pleasure was all ours. And listen, let's just go ahead and commit to this right now. You're coming back. At some point down the road, we will have you back on the show again. I think that we have to. Um, Katie, I'm done. What you got? I think that. Play us out. Play us out. (laughs) I'm sad that Kelly missed it. Kelly had a a personal issue that she had to deal with this afternoon. It was a last minute thing, but we uh, filled in for her quite nicely. We didn't have a fourth chair anyway. Uh, so it's just as well that she didn't show up because Mike took her chair and everything worked out great. So Kelly, we'll see you next week. Yes, and y'all don't forget to rate, subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on all our social media channels. Come out and see us live on Wednesday. Well, the day that this podcast comes is- out. <laughs> Wednesday, September. Is that September? September yep, the 1st. September 1st. Yeah, I know. We'll it's already September. Then. Good night, everybody. <laughs>